Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. In uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we hear about God taking his Sabbath rest. Since on the seventh day God was finished with the work he had been doing, he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had undertaken. The point that's being made here is not the creation took six days and we have seven days in a week, so God had an extra day. What was he going to do with it? The point is God thinks it's very important for us to set aside some real significant time to be in relationship with him. He's telling us whether you're Jewish and it's a Saturday or you're Catholic and it's a Sunday, the Lord's Day. You know how it changed from Saturday to Sunday? Because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. So that became known as the Lord's Day. So that became the day of rest. But the point God's trying to make in Genesis 2 is, I'm going to be in a covenant relationship with you. And in order for this to work, you have to take time out for me. And not just a little bit of time, but a whole day. And, of course, the rest of the week we're supposed to be keeping him in mind and have prayer time, too. But the point God's trying to make here is a significant amount of time. Give over a whole day. Rebel from work. Take your allowed rebellion. Take advantage of it. The church actually teaches on human work that we are supposed to use Sunday as a day of rebellion against all the other days that we have to work. And what do we do on Sundays? We work. So the next time the lawn is getting too high and it's Sunday and you don't know when you're going to get to it until the following Saturday, you look at the lawn growing and say, so what? God wants me to be in rebellion against mowing the lawn. I'm not going to do it. Okay. In Genesis 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And those three words are the key words right here, the breath of life. And so, man became a living being. Remember that symbol I gave you at the very beginning? Breath, air, breath of life. It's how we are existing. It's God giving us our life. And if God were to forget us for a moment, we wouldn't have life. We would, poof, be gone. If God stopped caring for us, poof, we wouldn't exist anymore. Never mind eternity. We won't be there. But God does care so much about us that he never for a moment forgets us. He is the source of life. In the creed, what do we say about the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. life. See, it all fits together. Now, here we see at the very beginning of the story, God breathing life into man. Now, let's move forward in time to Jesus. He's died. He's risen. He's visiting his disciples before ascending into heaven. And just before he goes into heaven, what does he do? He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. The last thing that Jesus did before going up into heaven was to breathe on them, fully aware what he was doing and how this tied into Genesis. So as God the Father started this breath of life in the very beginning, Jesus brought it to its greatest peak of fulfillment by giving us the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know where that is, that's in John 20, verse 22. 
The next place in Genesis we're going to go to is chapter 4. Look at the last sentence of chapter 4, the very last sentence. At that time, let me put it into context. If you look just the paragraph above that, it's talking about Cain and Abel. gives you a little bit of time frame. You know Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve. At that time, men began to invoke the Lord by name. How many of you in your versions of the Bible has the word Lord in all capitalizations? The reason why it's capitalized is because in the original Hebrew translation, it wasn't the word Lord. And the Lord is not an accurate translation for, which is why it's noted with all caps, Y-H-W-H, which in order to find a pronunciation for, we put in some vowels, Yahweh. The history of this word is this. The Jewish people realized that God was so holy, so extremely holy, that his name itself, which represented him, was too holy to speak. So they did not speak his name. They just wrote the initials of his name in order to refer to him. But when somebody, some Jewish person, was in the synagogue reading the scroll, he's not going in the middle of this say, and YHWH created the earth. Instead, he had to find another word to substitute it with. And what he substituted it with Well, at first, they pronounced it out as Yahweh because it wasn't actually the name of God. They could get away with that. But even as time went on, they said, no, he's too holy to even call him Yahweh. So they started calling him Lord. And actually, the word Lord comes from Kyrios in Greek. When the Greeks translated it, the Septuagint, when they looked at the written version and they saw Y-H-W-H, They had no translation for it, so they put in the word kyrios, which is the spoken word, the nearest translation to what the Jewish people were using when they spoke it, which is Lord. Okay, moving along here. It's time to put your seatbelts on, because we're going to move fast now. When God created mankind, it was his ultimate invention, so to speak. He had created the angels, and they were made in his image in a certain other way than we were. They were given much more understanding of things than we were. They were created much purer, much holier, a different class of being, but yet an intelligent class with souls, unlike the animals. And this is why when some of the angels fell from grace, they fell fully aware of who God was and why they should be worshiping him and why they should be trusting him. Fully aware they chose to reject, which is why they are forever evil and will never make it to heaven. Jesus came to save man. We say that in the creed, but he did not come to save the fallen angels because the fallen angels knew what they were leaving when they left heaven. When we sin, we don't really know what we're saying or what we're doing. We don't know just how bad it really is or we wouldn't be doing it. That's why on the cross Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. But the angels, they did understand. But getting back to mankind, God knew when he created us with the ignorances that we have, the limitations in our brains that we have, God knew that his creation was at risk. 
that we were going to blow it. So from the very beginning, he planned a solution. He created us to be free to choose to obey him or not. He knew we were going to choose to not. He knew that when he created us to be free to betray him, that we were going to betray him. And if you go back to chapter 1 in verse 28 and 30 in Genesis, this is, remember I talked about covenant before, the binding agreement, and the covenant means I am your God and you are my people, and here are the conditions for this to work out. And here's the first set of conditions. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and supply. Commandment number one. Commandment number two is fill the earth and subdue it. Number three, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that move on the earth. And God said, In return for this, see, verse 29, I will give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it will be your food. And to all the animals of the land and all the birds of the air and all the living creatures that crawl on the ground, I give all the green plants for food. In other words, there was no killing necessary. That was God's perfect creation. That was his plan. And that's the plan that we will finally go back to at the second coming of Christ. It was sin that ruined all that. But God said, I will give you all this. You don't have to work. You don't have to... Well, here's the way I like to put it. God said, don't desire to do what is evil. Remember the tree? He said, do not eat of this one particular tree. We'll get more into that in a minute. He says, this is part of the covenant that we're making. You don't desire what is evil. And therefore, if you do this, everything will be wonderful. You won't have to cook. You won't have to clean. You won't have to get a job and experience stress. You ladies won't even have to experience the pain of childbirth. Bugs won't bite you. Your pet lion won't bring fleas into the house. And your children won't bring home those weird dates who wear earrings in their noses. God said, if you just follow these simple commandments, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, take authority over it. You're the, uh, like the kings and queens of the earth. God's the king of the universe don't mean to supplant him but you're in charge the only don't I have to say is don't touch that tree don't desire to know what evil is don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you'll be all right that was the first covenant he gave him life and then he said okay now with this life here's how to stay in relationship with me here's how to be open to receiving the fullness of my love And by the way, that's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, when he talks about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the first thing he established when he gave life to us. The second thing God established was, you need to learn what relationship means, what it's all about to be in, a united, fully loving relationship. So, man, I'm going to give you a woman. I'm going to create a woman for you, a companion, somebody like yourself, somebody you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands, somebody who, when you want to feel my love, this is God speaking, remember, when you want to feel my love, you can cuddle up to her. 
And my love is flowing through her, so you're experiencing not just her love, but my love. It's all the same. There's only one love. God is love. That's it. So when we love each other, when we love our spouses, when we love our children, when we love our parents, we're giving them God because God is love. It's not like I have some love for Ralph and God has some love for Ralph. My love for Ralph is God's love. So God said, in order for this loving relationship to be tangible, so that when you want to feel me cuddling you, you want to feel my strong arms embracing you, you want to feel, because you know we're a feely, touchy people. We were created to hug. God created us with bodies who like touch and survive on touch. So he said, Adam, I'm going to give you Eve, although, as I said before, she wasn't named Eve yet. I'm going to give you this relationship that's tangible so that you can experience here on earth in the physical form what my love for you is like. So he created a companion for Adam. And you can find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. This was the beginning of the marriage covenant. This is what the Catholic Church stands on to say that divorce is meaningless. Divorce isn't valid unless there's certain circumstances. Jesus said that. Jesus said, except under certain circumstances, if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery because the marriage covenant cannot end just as our relationship with God and his love for us does not end. When Adam and Eve were joined together, verse 23 is what I'm looking at. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body, one flesh. Because marriage represents our relationship with God. And it's a witness to the world about what God's love is like. People who don't know how to find God, if they look at our marriages and see unity, they're seeing God. If we love the way Jesus tells us to love, people are being evangelized by that. They're seeing God. They're finding God because God is love. So right from the very beginning, God is saying, this relationship that you have with each other, and it's not just between man and woman, love is to be a commitment, a unity. It's to be permanent. Forgive 70 times, 7 times. Love between each other is supposed to be the same thing as the love between us and God. Now, Satan takes a look at what God's doing here in the garden, and he gets jealous. We're going to look a little bit at the history of Satan here. If you flip forward through time in the Bible and go to Isaiah, is being said about the king of Babylon, but at the same time he's referring to Satan. And we're going to turn to chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. It's a description of Satan and his fall from grace. How have you fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? You said in your heart, I will scale the heavens above the stars of God. I will set up my throne. Scholars all agree that he is talking about Satan here. Scriptures have many levels of meaning. And on the surface level, he's talking about this king on earth. But deeper than that, he's talking about the king of evil, of all evil. And in verse 13, above the stars of God, I will set up my throne. In other words, this is describing Satan as choosing 
wanting to be better than God, to have a higher throne than God himself. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. How many know somebody, don't raise your hands, who would like to be God, a God, who would like to call the shots? Maybe it's ourselves. God, you know, I have this relative who is just messing the whole family. She's divorced her husband, and she keeps sponging off of us, and then when we throw her out, she sponges off of somebody else, and everywhere she goes, she's just messing up everybody's lives. She's a real pain in the neck to be around. God, why don't you do something about her? And I think you ought to do it right now. End all of our misery by having her move to California. Or zap her like you did St. Paul and convert her on the spot. Knock her off her Cadillac and convert her. We're telling God how he should solve the problem with that relative. And God's up there going, well, let's see. The best and most loving way to deal with this person is to let her go through a bunch of trials until she finally says, I need God. And meanwhile, all these other relatives who are having to put up with her screwy behavior... They're learning just how much they are failing to love her so that they can then also turn to me and say, oh my gosh, I need God's help in loving this person. So I think a lot of good will come out of it if it takes 10 years for this relative to get straightened out. And we're sitting down here going, God, do something now. I've got a better idea than you, apparently, because you haven't answered my prayers yet. So you've got to listen to me, God. Same sin that sent Satan out of heaven. Every time we say, Lord, please, and do it my way. True prayer in loving relationship with God, with humility on our part, is, Lord, here's the problem. Here's how I'd like you to solve it. But whatever way you want, that's what's best. I trust in that, even if I can't understand that. And I will let you do it your way. And I will rest in that. I will trust in that to the point where I can rest in it instead of struggling against it. That's true relationship with God. Satan wanted to be like God. Satan wanted to do things his way. And one of the things that he didn't like about the way God was doing things was he created this puny creature called man who had a limited brain and limited understanding of things. And God loved this being and gave that being a soul so he was raised above the animals. And God actually dared to love this being as much as he loved Satan, who was superior. You know, the angels are superior to mankind. They know a lot more. So how could God love man just as much as he loves angels? It's not fair. So Satan said, this isn't right. I'm going to try to make things right. I'm going to show God just how screwy these people really are. So he goes down there to the Garden of Eden and shows up as a snake, serpent. And you know what the word serpent means? It means seraphine angel. And what Satan decided to do, and he's been doing it ever since, is to obscure the truth. His first name was Lucifer which means light-bearer. And who is the light? Who is the light? Jesus. When God planned mankind and gave us free will, he knew we'd screw things up. 
God said, I'm going to send my son into the world to save these people from what they have just messed up. And Satan, he does, he's not going to bear this light to us. Satan's saying, I don't want to be this light bearer. I don't want to help bring this good news, this salvation to these people. No, I want to keep them away from that salvation because I hate them. Because God thinks they're as important as I am. Therefore, I'm jealous. I hate these people. I'm going to try to mess their lives up as much as I can. And I'm going to try to prevent them from seeing the light. I will not bear them light. And that's when he was kicked out of heaven. And that's where his name changed from Lucifer to Satan. And Satan means adversary. He set up a rival kingdom to compete with God's kingdom. We call that hell. You might want to make a note of the scripture that described how he was dissatisfied with God's plan. It's in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, and verse 15 through 17. So in setting up this adversarial kingdom, he started a war. Other angels who were also jealous sided with him. And the book of Revelation says that it was a third of all the angels that sided with Satan. And that's in chapter 12 of Revelation. Revelation isn't just about the future. It's also about the long ago past. A battle was waged. The good angels kicked the bad angels out of heaven. And Satan has been trying to block the light of Christ ever since or destroy the light of Christ ever since. So getting back to Genesis, now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 is what we're covering next. This is where Satan appears to Eve, and he looks to her to be a harmless subject. Now remember, God gave Adam and Eve dominion, control, authority over the earth. Eve was the queen over this serpent. She thought this serpent was a harmless subject of hers, so she didn't know that she should be suspicious. She doesn't know what a lie is. She hasn't discovered evil yet. So she hears the serpent tell her, Did God say you're not supposed to eat of this tree? Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? Notice something happening here. He's warping the truth. He's blocking the light. You caught it? He didn't say, Did God really tell you you can't eat of this one particular tree? He says, did he really tell you not to eat any of the trees? He's starting to lay in some confusion in her mind. And how does she respond with confusion? She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. Now let's go back to what God really said in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord gave man this order. You are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and bad. From that tree you shall not eat. The moment you eat from it, you are surely doomed to die. Just talk about eating it. And going back to chapter 3, Eve is telling the serpent that God said she's not even allowed to touch it. So there's confusion setting in. And Satan replies back. He said, you're going to die? Ha! You're certainly not going to die. We were created immortal. You're not going to die. God is lying to you. He's trying to keep something wonderful from you. And why should you want anything to be kept from you? Why should you be denied even the fruit of this tree? You should be able to have anything you want. 
Doesn't that kind of sound like what's going on in our society today? Anything goes. You know, you want the bigger screen TV with all the fancy remote functions and everything, the screen inside a screen and all that. Go ahead. Get that extra job. Never mind that the kids will never see you. Get that extra job so that you can get all that. Anything you want, you should be able to have it. So the woman saw that this was desirable. Verse 6. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. We know what happened then. We know that she shares this fruit with Adam. We know what happens to them then. But look at what happens when God comes looking for them. We're still in chapter 3, in verse 8. When they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden, they hid themselves. Now, why do they need to hide themselves? Once they had partaken of the knowledge of evil, good and evil, they suddenly understood what evil was, and they understood it from the inside. They realized that they had done an evil by disobeying God. So they knew that they had evil within them, and they were ashamed, and they hid from the one who has no evil. They saw that they were so different now than God, and they were ashamed of that. God doesn't want us to be ashamed of our difference. He knows, and we know, that we're far inferior to him. We do sin. We do not have, even when we're not sinning, we don't have understanding that he understands. We are inferior to God, but that is nothing to be ashamed about. We sin, but because of what Jesus did, that is nothing to be ashamed about. And before Jesus, because God always provided a way back to him, the Jewish people didn't need to be ashamed. But Adam and Eve, they hid from him. God seemed to them to be their enemy now. They needed to hide from their enemy. He was too different from them. They thought he was certainly going to punish them, accuse them, or be mad at them, distance himself from them. But God never accuses them. He is not an accuser. Who is the accuser? Satan. He's the accuser. God is not an accuser, ever, to any of us. He knows when we sin, but he doesn't sit there waggling his finger at us and accusing us of it. He will convict us and remind us, but it's not an accusation. Verse 13, God just says, why did you do it? Not you bad person. He said, why? Why? And when Eve says, the serpent made me do it, God turns to the serpent. And because the serpent knew fully what he was doing and the woman did not, it's the serpent who really gets all the blame. On your belly you shall crawl. That means he has to eat dust. To Satan he's saying, eat my dust. He's saying, you are lower than the lowest now. Because of what you have done, the humans are going to be able to trample on you. Remember, we were created out of the dust, and now the serpent is made to eat the dust, to crawl on the dust. We are here, in this scripture, given authority over demons. And, of course, that theme comes up throughout the Bible. But right here, we're shown that Satan is made subject to us. We, if we realize it, can take authority over him and trample on him and trample on his plans. God then gives a promise to mankind. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. Who is the he that God is talking about here? It's Jesus Christ. The offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, is going to totally destroy Satan's power. And it says, he will strike at your head. Some versions say he will crush your head. Remember the word head. Just focus on the word head right now. Where was Jesus crucified? The mountain of the skull. Golgotha means the place of the skull. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit gnm.org today.